Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. We need to resist the siren call of the extreme. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Jorge Arango. Jorge is an information architect, author, and educator. He helps design products and services that bring business goals and user needs into alignment. Jorge is the author of Living in Information, Responsible Design for Digital Practices, which was released in 2018, and the co-author of Information Architecture for the Web and Beyond. He's a keynote speaker and workshop facilitator at global design conferences. In addition to his design consulting practice, Jorge also writes a blog, hosts a podcast, and teaches systems design in the Graduate Interaction Design Program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. We explore Jorge's journey from an architect of buildings to an information architect and designer of systems. We discuss the need for responsible design and why it's important to be suspicious of extremes, especially in the context of social media. It was an honor having Jorge join me on the show. I thank him for sharing his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jorge, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't mind for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And thank you for having me, Matt. Um, I am an information architect. And that means that in practical terms, it means that I design software. I design uh, the sort of things that you experience on screens mostly. That's kind of like the, the, the pragmatic, uh, what can most people relate to aspect of the work. I, I have a more philosophical take on it. I, I like to say that I design places made of language, which um, we can get into if, if you would like. But uh, that's what I do. And my background, I started out as an architect, as a, as a designer of buildings. That's what I studied at university. And I practiced architecture for a couple of years. And then in the early to mid-1990s, the World Wide Web happened. And um, I had been involved with computers from very early on, I, I think that I am a member of a generation that, perhaps the first generation, that grew up with computers as playthings. So in the in the late 1970s, um, things like the Atari 2600 um, became popular. The first one of the first video game uh, consoles for the home, and personal computers were a thing. And I was very lucky to be introduced to personal computers at a, at a very early age. And when I saw the World Wide Web, 
I, I had been exposed to the internet in the university, but it, it really was the World Wide Web that, uh, that, um, that blew my socks off. <laughs> And uh, and that seemed to combine the the love I had of computers and technology with a lot of the concerns that I had as an architect around structure and um, design for design for living is the way that I would articulate it now, but just like designing things that, that people can um, use to make their lives better in some way. Yeah, and, and you and I are of a similar age too. So I appreciate the framing too of computers as playthings, right? The, from the video consoles to uh, smaller, ver whether it was like a, a, a Radio Shack Tandy or a Commodore 64, uh, even in, in high school, so I was in high school in the mid to late 80s, having a computer math class where we were writing programs to, to do simple math problems. And some of the things that would then happen is when you had lab time, like teaching small objects how to do jumping jacks, right? You'd have like stick figures, like doing animation and just playing with those tools. And I started off early in research and uh, basically more market research. Uh, early in my career and uh, and web and web projects those those two, but I was a my undergraduate was a humanities degree in communication studies, but I had a literature class that uh, was taught in a the information arcade at the University of Iowa. So early '90s, and we had to turn project interactive projects in on SciQuest cartridges. But it was it's interesting because there wasn't a lot of form to the web yet. It was a lot of figuring out. How does there weren't a lot of standards, right? And uh, so a lot that we could dig into too is like where these things have gone because I know uh, one of your books too, kind of the unintended consequences of like social spaces. Uh, so I, I do want to dig into that, but I I just wanted to build on that that framing that you put out there. But if you don't mind backing up, what what got you interested in architecture, or you know architecting of buildings first before architecting of information? You know, it's really, uh, this is a question that I've been asked before, and I try to think back to what led me to study architecture, and it's hard for me to pin it down, but I will say that I had a pretty f formative experience in visiting Walt Disney World early on. Um and and that's that might raise eyebrows because in the world of architecture, theme parks are seen kind of with suspicion. <laughs> They're like people look at you, uh, yeah, kind of ask you, and and go, it's like, what's wrong with this person? Because they're. Uh, in, well, they're two buildings as uh, candy is to food, right? It's the sort of thing that uh, it's like a it's like an a, an amped up experience that um, is appealing. Uh, you're, you're expected to have your tastes evolve from candy, right? As, as, you, as you mature. Um, but as a child uh, visiting Walt Disney World was formative in that the, I, I got the sense, and, and this is only something that I can articulate later up, l later, <laughs> you know, being retrospective about it. But it, um, 
it was very exciting to inhabit places that I had only read about in stories or seen in movies, right? And, and there was a sense there that here was this environment that had been designed with intent, right? Like, and the intent was, in, in that case, it was having fun of some sort or living in this story world, uh, of, which is really exciting for a kid, right? Uh, and I remember as a, as a kid, m I think my first ex my first memories of of modeling um, pretty much I, I think modeling anything um, with my hands was making little scale models of um, of those theme parks uh, just because I, I was kind of in in love with with those things. <laughs> Yeah, I, and just you know, thinking about the the Disney theme park experience, and I I think they've only become better at it. But talking about immersive design and immersive experiences, right, that um, the way that you go to a land, right? They have these different groupings, right? And then there's themes throughout, and then the ride itself, and that to your your point, the intentionality, right, which is such a critical part of design. But the way they think through that, or for me, even these rides where it could be a half hour, an hour to go on a, maybe a 10 minute ride or less, right? And, but the way they manipulate time that it doesn't feel like it, they, they don't let you see the whole line, but you're still, there's still elements of design throughout that you can still be entertained, even waiting for a ride, which I think separated themselves from so many theme parks in the, in the seventies and eighties too. We must be careful because if we go down the path of talking about the Disney theme parks, we, that might consume our entire <laughs> our entire time together here. But uh, but but, uh, but but I'll say this: um, I uh, I have not outgrown my love of those things. Uh, I find them endlessly fascinating. Um, you're you're right in what you're saying, and I think that there's a great a great degree of there's a great depth in um, in the work that those folks are doing and the way that those experiences and by the way I, I think that the people who design those theme parks can properly be called experienced designers where people who are designing things that you consume through screens have less so <laughs> A, a, a right to use that that word, but these folks are truly designing experiences. The the Imagineers, as Disney call them, calls them, and um, they have to contend not just with the fact that they are creating physical environments that must support human bodies, you know, with uh, with our our senses, uh, and they have to tell certain stories and immerse you in certain worlds. But they also have to cater to the way that people that people consume stories. Uh, and I say it like that because if you look at some of the the rides, the, they, they call them attractions. They, this is the other thing that fascinates me. They have a very particular language that they've developed to describe the work they do. But uh, the, the, the attractions that were designed in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s even, 
have as their starting point cinema. So um, they assume that the audience is familiar with cinema as a storytelling medium and take something like The Haunted Mansion, right, which is, I think, a, uh, a milestone for, for that sort of experience. The, the vehicles that convey you through, through that experience are designed to rotate and tilt. They don't just move in a linear direction. They also rotate, tilt, and they're designed in such a way that they occlude your peripheral vision. And it's, it's almost like you are turned into a film camera and our, you know, and your attention is, is, um, is projected <laughs> through this environment. Um, and I, I was hearing um, in a podcast the other day, someone speculating about how the newer um, attractions have to take into consideration that gaming, video games are now a thing and people are experiencing stories through that medium, which is very different from cinema. It's not a linear medium. Uh, gaming is not as linear a medium <laughs> as, as cinema is. So like controlling their, 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 their point of view in the way that something like The Haunted Mansion does might not well, this is not me speculating, but might not be as effective as, uh, you know, for, for people who grew up with, with games. Anyways, like I said, we could go yeah. down this rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, just, just to check in, have you been able to see the Imagineer uh, kind of documentary series through Disney Plus? I have seen the first two episodes and I have not seen, the, I have not uh, gorged on the whole thing because I'm trying to see it with my kids and they are much more enticed by non-documentary things like The Mandalorian, right? Yeah. So I, I have to kind of yeah. cajole them into that. <laughs> but I do, I do appreciate those early stories of uh, the intentionality, what the Imagineers were trying to do and the way that they were pushing the boundaries of technology and experience. Uh, but we'll... Jump off the Disney attraction. Uh, Want to talk to you a little bit too. So, so you switched from uh, architecting of buildings into to IA. Did and trying to back up because a lot. When I think about also early days of of digital design, UX really wasn't a term. Right and and help me. Did did we have the term IA? You know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, my first exposure. So, so I'll say this, and I think my my trajectory. Uh, I've heard other folks of our vintage say similar things, right? So, my trajectory was one where I started doing this because, like I said, I I uh, I was dazzled by the web, and I wanted to be a part of it, and I came to it only with the frameworks that I had from architecture. There were no, there was no, as far as I knew, <laughs> there was no, um, there, there were no uh, formal, formal ways of approaching the design of these things. I mean, early on, I was just studying HTML. Like I remember uh, buying books, it's like make a website or whatever. And it was all like coding, right? 
And there was nothing there about what the, what, it's like, here's how you draw pixels on the screen, but there was nothing telling you, it's like what those pixels should be. And um, there was a lot of um, experimentation and hacking about with a new unformed medium. And, um, and it wasn't until, a, I think it was 1994, I, uh, I was in a bookstore it might have been 1995. I, I I don't remember, but it was like the middle of the of the 90s. I was in a bookstore and I saw Richard Slowerman's book Information Architects. And I, what drew me to that was the words Information Architects because, hey, I was an architect and I was. Uh, I was feeling a little bit like uh, a, a person who. I, I won't say that I was unmoored, but I had—I uh, did not have a community of practice. I had left architecture, and I could not properly call myself an architect if I was designing websites. And here, it like I—I I saw that book cover, which has the words "Information Architects" very boldly printed on the cover, with a very uh, bold definition of what the words meant. Uh, and uh, and I saw those two words, and it felt to me like they were a Venn diagram that perfectly described my career. It's like there's information and there's architecture, and I'm kind of like the overlap of those things. And I um, I felt hard for uh, that idea of of information architecture, and uh, and uh, <laughs> and frankly, I, I'm I'm still kind of in love with that idea of information architecture. Uh, and it's been a while, but, uh, but it, it set the course of, uh, for my career. And then, um, and then there was um, the other prominent book with that set of words on the cover, the, the O'Reilly Polar Bear book by uh, Lou Rosenfeld and Peter Morville, which came uh, a few years later but that one was even more specific to what I was doing because it was about the web and it had the web on the cover as well, right? It said for information architecture for the World Wide Web. So yeah, those two things, uh, those two books have been central in my, in my life and my career. And thinking about just where, where we were in those early days, I was, I've talked to people about this because I don't remember having, other than just your own personal ethics. I don't remember having ethics conversations about what we were building. Right? And it was, and I, and I don't want to romanticize it too much, but it just felt like we were trying to make cool things that made life easier for people. And they were, they're almost usually self-contained applications, right? Cause we weren't nearly as connected as we were, but if you came to the site and you were trying to get information or do something, let's make it easier for you. And then we start connecting more and more applications. It becomes easier for networks to develop. Um, and so I'm just curious on, uh, from your perspective, because I know also, you know, uh, ethics and, and kind of unintentional or ironic uses of technology are important to you. Where did, where did we miss the boat? Uh, or, I mean, am I, am I reading it correctly that we were just kind of enthralled with making things work that we weren't thinking about how they might be used? Yeah, I don't think that I would characterize it as missing the boat. I think that it is the natural evolution of a discipline. 
especially one that is emerging around a set of technologies that is new and evolving very quickly. The, in those early days, we were just trying to make the thing work. You know, it's like uh, it's like you're trying to figure out how to um, how to lay out elements on a web page, and we had uh, all sorts of awful hacks. I don't know if you remember spacer dot gif. Is it gif or gif? I always forget. Uh, but the, we'll, yeah, we'll set off a religious uh, war. Yeah. All right, so let's go with GIF. So spacer.gif, right? Like uh, we were hacking about trying to come up with layouts and um, and and having things like dynamically rendered pages, which opened up the poss opened up tremendous possibilities. And and it, it's it, whenever a technology is new and developing, it's very hard to for for the people who are in the midst of it to create guidelines, best practices, that sort of thing. I mean, things are changing too fast. Um, <clears throat> also, the impact on the world was relatively small compared to what we have now. So the effects of the mistakes were less pronounced. Uh, I think that if you, um, if you made a... If you designed and, and, and put out into the world a system in the late 90s that, um, I don't know, that, uh, that uh, led to unhealthy um, civic discussions, the impact of that thing would be greatly reduced by the fact that there weren't as many people using it as there are now. And the technology has become widespread and with that their impact the, the impact of these things has increased tremendously and um, and ethical concerns come to the fore I, I think that the one thing that we did miss and not n not all of us I, I mean we have colleagues who have been talking about this for a long time um, but uh, many of us, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll count myself in that group, uh, missed um, until fairly late on the fact that these things were in some ways taking over from, um, from other types of places uh, as the contexts in which key civic discussions happen. Right, our ability to come together as um, a a body politic uh, traditionally has rested on our ability to meet in physical environments. Right, the coffee shop, the, the I think the the the, 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 the classic kind of Norman Rockwell pictures of the barber shop. Right, um, and. Places like Facebook, I think, now exert a... They, they play that role to a greater degree than, um, than, than they used to, and perhaps than, than the, the traditional physical environments, especially now uh, over the last 
you know, the, most of this year uh, with the, the coronavirus, it's happening kind of on overdrive, right? Like we're, we're moving everything we can move online. And um, that combination of scale and just the pervasiveness of these um, digital experiences and a colleague of ours, uh, uh, these colleague of, uh, colleagues of ours, uh, Andrea Resmini and, um, and his co-author, who's, uh, his name escapes me right now, but uh, they, they, all, they wrote a book called uh, uh, Pervasive Information Architecture, right? Uh, talking about these things. Uh, so, so there are people who have been writing about this stuff. Uh, Luca Rosati, that's his uh, his co-author's name. Uh, the the there are people who have been telling us about this stuff for a while, right? And um, and uh, it's just now it's impacting more and more of us, and it's clearer what is happening. Yeah, that it's interesting too because I know different times in my life I've gone back to my communication discipline and looking at communicate more communication related philosophers and also uh, like cultural anthropologists and almost looking at some theoretical threads that just you're, you're seeing still behind it the theory is still working right but just like you said things that are on overdrive or uh, you know thinking about the way misinformation is shared and and also how knowing all these triggers where humans <laughs> get excited about something, it will reduce thought, you know, their mob mentality and sharing information where I was talking to somebody a while ago, back up to when we were kids, if you saw something really interesting in the newspaper, not a, you had to wait till the morning, you saw it, and then you had to be so dedicated to sharing it that you would cut that out, either photocopy it or send that article to a friend Right. Rather than now you can you can just hit share and have it have it across the world. I want to talk to you about your uh, so your book, Living in Information, Responsible Design for Digital Places. And so that came out two years ago. Uh, and, and also just thinking about the the accelerated pattern we've seen even from uh, 2018 to 2020. But if you don't mind backing up, what what was your inspiration to, to write a book? Uh, and to to spend the time and effort because there, it, it's it's not a it's not an easy thing to just sit down and, and write a well written book. Well, thank you for that, uh, and thank you for suggesting that it's well written. <laughs> it's, it's 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 always a uh, author. One of the challenging things about writing um, a book, especially, is that the feedback. There's little feedback and it comes very late in the process. <laughs> uh, right, right. And we, we might get into writing because that's, uh, that's something I'm very passionate about. But, um, but to answer your question, the inspiration for that was what um, the conversations that I was having with colleagues in the information architecture community. Um, um, I've already mentioned Andrea's work, but uh, there are lots of colleagues. Uh, Andrew Hinton is another one who comes immediately to mind, who also wrote a, a, a great book um, about this stuff. Um, and we were, you know, there were conversations happening in that community that I saw playing out in 
um, in civil society. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the 2016 election here in the U.S. felt a little bit like a breaking point in this regard. Um, the, it became evident, I think, to a lot of people then that these environments where we are having these discussions online can exert tremendous influence on our perception of what's going on. And it can lead to it can lead to disunity, let's call it, uh, like the, these uh, misalignments between folks. Uh, and and I, again, I don't think that it was new in 2016. There are people who have been written, uh, writing about things like um, opinion bubbles and, and stuff like that, uh, uh, which um, precede this stuff. And, and I was just thinking, um, and even before the web, right, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Neil Postman, who in the 90, 1980s wrote about uh, television in a, in a similar way, right? Um, and unfortunately, Neil Postman is no longer with us, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I, uh, I, I, I often wonder what he would make of, of these things. And it felt to me like the time was... Right. There were, the questions were being asked about what was going on. And the answers that I saw playing out in the media all kind of stayed at the level of, well, these, these things are like um, some kind of publishing medium or there's some kind of product. Like the, the metaphors, like if you, if you listen to the metaphors that... Um, that we use when we talk about the work we do, we, we talk about experiences and we talk about interactions and we talk about um, uh, products uh, or services, right? And, and these things are all transactional. And the perspective that seemed to me to be missing was the contextual nature of these things. So Facebook, yes, Facebook is a, in some ways it is a product, uh, in some ways, it is a publishing medium, but it's also a type of place. And that perspective, I thought, was missing in the conversation. And you're, if you go have a conversation with your neighbors, if you meet your neighbors at the local barbershop, you know, and you're, and you're uh, just talking about politics, um, it's likely that there will be neighbors there who have different political perspectives and uh, you might um, have a heated conversation even um, or you might have a civil conversation but the barbershop itself the, the place where the conversation is happening is kind of like a neutral ground for the most part. I mean, it, I know that there might be exceptions and one can't generalize like this, right? Maybe the barbershop owner is a partisan and the barbershop is covered with posters or something. Uh, 
But imagine like a barber, like a, just a regular barbershop and, um, and you're having this conversation and the, the place where the conversation is happening is just like a, a vessel for this exchange to take place. Uh, in addition to being a place where you can get your hair cut, right? But, uh, uh, um, but my point is, the, the, the place itself is not trying to sway you one way or the other, right? And what's happening with things like Facebook is that, and I'm using Facebook as the convenient uh, poster child, but there's a lot of them, right? Uh, what's happening with these things is that the business model that they are built upon, namely advertising, depends on the company's ability to sell the user's attention. And that sets up a set of incentives that drive you to uh, want to keep the user engaged as long as possible. And at that point, the place is no, lo no longer a neutral vessel, right? Um, the, the person I've heard most clearly talk about this stuff is um, Zeynep Tufekci, who has written a lot about a lot of things. And I heard her in a podcast say uh, something that really, um, really stuck with me. And I'm going to paraphrase. She said that it's the equivalent of trying to have a meeting in a conference room that's designed to keep the meeting going forever. Uh, that's not a very effective meeting, right? And, and, uh, and, uh, and that's what's happening here. And I think that we have to take this more contextual approach to the design of these things. Yeah, I like, uh, I mean, still going, going back to a big design theme, the, the intent, right? And what was it intended to do? And, you know, kind of the, the shorthand sometimes is like, if you're not, if, if the product or service is free, you're the product, right? Yeah. Yep. Remem remembering that. Uh, and yeah, with, because I forget how long I've been hearing the term, but right, like when you hear like a marketing objective of, of for an experience to be sticky, <laughs> as a as a user or consumer, like there there's very few things that I want that are sticky, and they they almost exclusively come from a really good bakery, right? But other than that, I don't want a sticky experience. But like it's it's designed to keep you to hold your attention, and it's it's not holding your attention in the most ethical ways, right? It, it, well, it might be that some experiences uh, you do want to be sticky. Um, so I, I don't want to come across as being a zealot and saying that all of these things are bad or that all advertising is bad. Uh, I don't believe that. I think that some of them, um, we, we have to take a more nuanced approach. I, I think that some of them, some experiences are more conducive to our uh, willingness to surrender to the environment. We were talking about the Disney theme parks earlier, right? Uh, those are places where we go to willingly suspend our disbelief and willingly participate in uh, various, um, in embodying various cultural mythologies, right? Um, that's why we're there. And they are... Um, engrossing and they are um the uh, Walt Disney had this uh directive for Disneyland where he did not want you to be able to see the outside world right and they they built a berm around the park and they put a train on it 
in part to shield you from the rest of Anaheim. Because if you, when you step through those gates, you are meant to believe that you are in the far west or in the, in the future or what have you, right? And um, there's a commercial aspect to this as well. So it's not like it's ethics-free. Uh, you, you, you are there, uh, the, the company makes money if you shop and, uh, and, the, and there are cues in the environment that lead to that happening as well. But my point is, <clears throat> there are some experiences that you, um, that are more conducive to others that, uh, for doing this sort of thing. But um, my, my concern specifically about these things has to do with civic discussions, with our ability to come together as a society um, my, it, it, and this is something that, that I, I set out as the framing in the book. Like my concern is about setting up the conditions that make it possible for societies to stand the test of time. So it's, there's no guarantee that societies will be around, you know. Uh, lots of societies have fallen apart for various reasons. And... I think that we have a pretty good thing and I would like for the thing we have to thrive and to be around for the long term. And the question is, what kinds of environments are we meeting in to have the conversations that bring us together as a people? That's a different question than the question about what kind of environment are you going to go to have fun in, right? <laughs> uh, and, we, and, and, and we can't confuse those two. It seems to me like it's a mistake to confuse those two. Thank you. I really appreciate your perspective on that. I want to back up a little bit to, to uh, I think it's when, when we first met was a conference a couple years ago, and uh, I was sitting in on a talk that you gave, and... Uh, it was during the question and answer period and and uh i think a, a young designer or maybe even a student was asking about a career in design and and what might you do to be a better designer and paraphrasing your response uh i said learn another language was mm -hmm. was your response and you 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 dug into that a little bit to and and then Part of it is also me piecing together, so it might not even be what you said at this point, but I think when you, so I want to get to being bilingual, but when you learn another, you're learning another system, there's other cultural elements that come across, you're seeing a whole different set of patterns, some are familiar, right, but then it's also learnable systems, so you're, you, but then you have more tools in your toolkit, more perspective, and I think it probably makes you a better listener as well, because you really are trying to understand what somebody is saying. But if you don't mind, uh, one, let me know if I'm out to lunch on that. Did I did I capture that? But also the power of learning other language as a, to be a better designer. Yeah, that's. Uh, thank you for that. I I, I, I had forgotten about that, um, but it is something that I do tell students, and I, I must qualify that. Um, that I was talking specifically about a career in information architecture. I, th I think that design more broadly, I would answer differently. But for information architecture, which again, I, I said earlier, um, I shouldn't say I said earlier because you might want to edit things, but, um, <laughs> but um, 
But if, if you think of it as um, designing places made of language, then it becomes evident why I think that learning a second language is so important. There are practical reasons why you might want to learn a second language. I mean, one thing, let, let's start with one premise, which is anyone who is listening to our conversation here and is understanding it is incredibly uh, privileged and blessed in that knowing English is, um, English is the lingua franca of the world. And it's the language in which the, all the, pretty much all of the developments that we've been talking about, uh, for, from the Disney theme parks to the World Wide Web, emerged in the crucible of English. And if you are to know the technologies to master um, any of these fields, it's very helpful to be able to speak English. So I, I just want to start from that starting point that I, I'm assuming that uh, people listening to us at least speak English, right? So the question is, why would you want to learn a second one that is not English? And it's harder for an English speaker to answer that question than it is for a non-English speaker. The, the reasons to learn English are self-evident. Uh, the reasons to learn another language are, are, are harder to posit. Uh, there might be practical reasons, like for example, um, someone might be interested in another culture or have traveled abroad and, and wanted to um, know the place. Learning a second language is a big commitment. It takes a lot of time and effort. So you would want to have pretty good reasons to do it. For someone who is designing um, an information architecture, the, the main reason why I think learning a second language would help is not the practical one of being able to translate things or being able to speak with colleagues in the other language. It's because language, especially if we only speak one of them, is something that we grow up in and we take for granted. It's, a, um, it's such an integral part of who we are that we don't see it for what it is. It's a technology in some ways, and it's a medium. And our colleague Andrew Hinton uh, uses the image of, of fish not being able to see water, right? And well, they, they, don't, they don't even know that they like they can't have discussions about water because like why would we like we're you know what is the water it's like you, you don't even know it right because you're you're immersed in it right and uh and andrew uh, as i recall he makes the point that that language is to people as water is to fish and the thing that happens when you learn a second language is that all of a sudden the structural vocabulary, grammatical underpinnings of this thing become evident for study. And the, by, by learning another one, all of a sudden these structures uh, are cast in contrast. And, and it becomes clearer to you that A, these things are not some kind of fact of nature. They are 
cultural artifacts that have emerged and they're contingent so there are these the systems are not uh, perfectly self-consistent they have all sorts of quirks and there are no sometimes there are no one-to-one -one mappings between things right and all of a sudden it becomes clear to you that it is a, a an artifact that is malleable and contingent and you can play with it in a different way so I, uh, I I feel a little bit like it's a uh, matrix thing where all of a sudden you can see the matrix for what it is, you know, uh, and and I think that learning a second language is a very powerful way of doing that. Yeah, thank you. Because I know a lot of uh, what part of what I heard that too is, uh, my wife is a professor in the College of Education at the University of Iowa, and she focuses on uh, foreign language education and second language acquisition and. So some of the things that emerge from her realm is you also see the the positive benefits for the individual uh, on what on their development. I mean, there's there's strong positive things that happen beyond what you said, like a maybe a pragmatic need to speak a dominant language just to to be there. On a nerd side, for me, one of the things I love about other languages is uh, idiomatic expressions and metaphors. Uh, so when you hear a common idiomatic expression from another language, like, ah, that captures that challenge. Like in English, we didn't quite have a term for that, but I love, or uh, even just sometimes it just makes me chuckle hearing, oh, that's how like, you know, like things like ass over tea kettle. And when you hear like, or other things that are for folks that just are trying to show confusion or a discombobulated person, I don't know why, but those are just, I just love hearing uh, the more the translate, how does that translate to English? But it's, it's a weird part of language that I nerd out on. Yeah, what, what's this German word? Um, it's escaped me, the one that, um, that they have this word for uh, the pleasure that, you feel at someone else's misfortune. The Schadenfreude. Uh, Schadenfreude, right? Like that's a that's a. That, I mean that and that and that that tells you so much, right? Uh, the fact that there's a word for that. Um, but uh, but coming back to design, uh, I'm. Um, I think that we underappreciate the degree to which language is a design medium. And uh, I'm reminded of this uh, phrase from Peter Drucker. He said um, that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast or something like that, right? That's it. I, I, tell, I, tell, I teach an innovation class at Iowa, and that is, that's one of the big, big quotes we use in there. Right. And, uh, and the, this ties back to Disney, uh, actually, because one of the things that I appreciate so much about that, what those folks do is that they have used language very consciously to create a culture that, that is the operating system of, of that enterprise. Um, and I'll give you a, just a, a kind of trivial example. So uh, I already spoke of attractions, right? Like uh, th there's a guideline there where they don't use the word rides, they use the word attractions, that's very conscious. And another one is the Disney parks don't have employees they have cast members right and the areas where guests are um, inhabiting in the theme parks are said to be on stage 
whereas the areas that they're not supposed to be in are said to be backstage. And if you pay attention, as you walk around those places, you'll see signs that say backstage access only. And um, these terms did not emerge arbitrarily. They were selected very carefully to layer on top of the experience. And it's not just the guest experience, but also the experience of the people working there to layer the metaphor of show business on top of the thing, right? And I think that that plays a, a big role in the service, the level of service that you experience when you visit these things, because it's very different for someone to go to work thinking that they're uh, there to, um, I don't know, sweep the sidewalks than it is for them to think that they're there to entertain you, right? Uh, and it might be that you're sweeping the sidewalks anyways, but you are uh, doing it in a frame of mind where you're doing it um, as part of an effort to create an experience. That's culture, right? And it's intentionally designed culture. Yeah, some of what you were saying was reminding me of, uh, and I'll, I'll probably butcher the exact uh, frame that Kenneth Burke used, but one of his claims around language and communication was that we view the world through terministic screens or linguistic screens. And so also, if we don't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. It's just not accessible to us. And and then what we do also sets a frame, right? It's like the, and these systems kind of build on each other. But I've always appreciated that. And I've, I've even talked to students about that as like, go, go through your progression as a little kid with crayons. <laughs> when, when you're really little, there's maybe four or eight colors that exist, right? But as, then you're even introduced to like a 16 or a 32 set. And now you're seeing colors you didn't see before. You can describe one that there's, not only is there green and blue, there's a blue green, there's a, a green blue, there's turquoise, right? And so that's what I, I, just going back to your intentionality and framing is how might we use better, healthier frames too for these conversations? need to take place uh, so that it's not just maybe sloppy or ham-fisted things that we'll just keep, you know, using Facebook as a general example, but, you know, it just continues to extend and mostly to just hold on to people and get ad revenue, right? It wasn't like set out, let's, what we'd like to create is we want to harness the power of the internet to have thoughtful conversations that, you know, connect the world. And I think they even try to say that they try to connect the world, but right, it, the intent wasn't really to <laughs> lift everybody, right? So, sorry, I'm meandering there, but just the idea no, of it, I, the, it, the but, framing being so important and those those terministic or linguistic screens from the very beginning kind of set some of those cultural extensions. Absolutely, and 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 I think that the those screens, when we're talking about an enterprise like the Walt Disney Company or Facebook or what have you, uh, those... Um, frames emerge from choices around the business model, right? So the the challenge is that in, um, the challenge with something like Facebook is that the business model is misaligned with the intent of the environment. So in the case of uh, the Disney theme parks, like we were saying, I'm there to suspend disbelief, I'm there to have a good time, I'm there to um, to live out um, like I said, like immerse myself in, in mythology or, or live out some kind of, um, of fantasy experience. And 
the the business model that drives that environment, which is um, paid access to the environment and also consumption of material goods, whether it be food or plush toys or what have you, um, the the goal of having this fantasy experience is not misaligned with the goal of consumption, right? It, in fact, the, the consuming things might amplify your, the, the, the pleasure you feel and the, the, the gratification that you get out of, uh, you know, if, if you buy a lightsaber, uh, all of a sudden you're part of the Star Wars story or whatever, right? Um, so uh, that's a case in which the, the, the goals of the, of the guest or the, the user of that environment are more closely aligned with the, the business model drivers that operate the place. The, the, the challenge with something like Facebook is that the business model, I think, this is my, my personal opinion, I think the business model is not as clearly aligned with what people are there to do. Uh, keeping up with my friends uh, is completely, um, I think it's completely at odds with me being exposed to, I don't know, car insurance or whatever it is that is paying to, uh, to get my attention, you know? Um, and that's, that's with the trivial example of seeing your friends' updates uh, when you get into the territory of having conversations about uh, our governance options, um, then it can actually get nefarious because if the if the place is making money from um, somehow manipulating your attention, which is let's be frank, what uh, advertising does by design, um, then there are going to be parties who's, who have an interest in manipulating your attention towards their, uh, their ends. And that is going to change the nature of the place in a way that I think is not conducive to good, transparent conversations. Thank, yeah, thank you. One of the things I like to do with guests before we conclude the conversations, always talk about uh, advice generally, either good advice that you've received from a mentor and continue to to use or even un unpack as you get older, uh, or advice that you wish you would have had. Steal from Austin Kleon, steal like an artist. We, we're giving advice. We're still just talking to our younger self, but I didn't know if you've you've had good advice from a mentor or have advice that you, you have something you wish you would have known early in your career that you might want to share with the audience. Oh my gosh, there's so much, and and I keep uh, journals and notebooks where I keep track of all this stuff because um, it's so important to um, to to uh, to having a, a life that is um, to living a life that is driven by values and and doing good work. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind, um, and it's something that my dad told me. And he's, he's told me many times during my life um, from when I was very young was to be, I'm, I'm going to frame it like this, to be suspicious of extremes. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, you, you can put it more practically, like avoid the extremes. Like the extremes, uh, it's easy to, the extremes almost are easy to gravitate towards. 
Um, and they're rarely the right answer. And I, th I think my dad spotted early on a tendency in me to look at the world in terms of blacks and whites. And, um, I, and I mean that in terms of like, like high contrast, right? Like in terms of extremes. And he kept tugging me back and saying, no, you know, things are more complicated than, than you think. And um, avoid the extremes, basically. And that advice, I feel, has continually served me well. And it's so hard, Matt, because especially now, we live in a time when there are tremendous social rewards to playing to your tribe, to um, trying to one-up each other in our willingness to downplay the other's positions. And I think that that's a recipe for disaster, basically. Like I, I said that, uh, that I aim for societies that stand the test of time, that calls for coming together, not growing apart. And if we are unwilling to see other people's point of view and to demonize other people, uh, especially our neighbors, right? The people who we have to live with, um, then it's going to be hard to keep things going in the way that we want them to keep going. So I'm, um, I, I, I think this ties back to the responsible design for digital places. Um, when you have these experiences, these environments that have been set up to monetize attention, one of the results is becoming evident is that uh, extreme positions, uh, positions that fuel strong emotions are more conducive to engagement than more nuanced positions. And um, I think that we have to resist the siren's call of extremes. And we have to, and, and it's easy to say that of the other. It's much harder to say it of ourselves and to look at our own positions and to, and to really take a, a look at what we're advocating and, and asking ourselves, is this, um, are there other ways of looking at this? Are there other reasonable ways of looking at this? Right, right. Thank you so much, Jorge. I appreciate both that, that piece of advice and, and your, your father's advice. Uh, and, and I'm just, uh, honored that you took the time to join me on the podcast. It was it was great to connect. This has been a pleasure. Thank you.